Let's pray. Father, we thank you for so many things. We don't have time to say them all, but right now we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people assembled. We thank you for your spirit who is able to teach us and instruct us. And we're reminded that Jesus said it's better that he goes away so that he could send the comforter, the teacher, the advocate, the paraclete. Because he will be in us. And so this morning we cling to that promise and trust that you will teach us and instruct us, convict us, bring new life, Holy Spirit. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I got to be honest, I came into this passage this week and um, foolishly, I was kind of like, I don't know, I don't know. It all seems like stuff we've already said. It seems like stuff we've already covered. And I know I said early on, maybe even in the introduction, uh, before we actually got into the book of Hebrews, there is a lot of repetition in this book. That's not by accident. This guy is, (laughs) whoever he was, he knew what he was doing. And the best way to learn tough concepts, big concepts, a lot of information is what? Repetition, repetition, repetition. So you're going to hear a lot of stuff this morning you've heard before, but he's setting these arguments out. I'll read a quote later by Donald Guthrie that talks about this. He's setting these things out in such a specific, purposeful way. It's like you hear this, and then you hear it again, and then you hear it again, and like finally you're like, oh. And we're going to see some of that today. So I come out of this text to come up here and stand before you guys, and I am just blown away by this text and my expectations were firmly shattered and look forward to what we have to say today. So we'll start with verses one and two. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Anytime you're reading the Bible, really anytime you're reading anything, but we're Bible people here. Anytime you're reading the Bible, always be looking for these. Now the point and what we are saying is this statements. Why? Because it's the point he's trying to make, right? Therefore, in conclusion, consequently, we've already seen so many of those in in this book, but today he literally says, now the point and what we are saying is this. The author is about to tell us what the point is and what he's been saying. And that's important, right? He has said a lot over the last few weeks, right? We've been looking at this thought pattern of Jesus as our high priest really since chapter 4. And we're going to continue to look at it through chapter 10. Um, The high priest in the Levitical priesthood, the old covenant under the law, that high priest was put in place by God to be the chief priest And as such, he was the civic and the religious leader of God's people. He alone, that God-appointed human, natural man, priest, high priest, only he went into the Holy of Holies once a year. So they they went from the tabernacle to the temple. Both the tabernacle and the temple had this inner, inner, inner court, that place where God was said to reside. And the high priest alone went into that place and he did it once a year. And he did so to make atonement, which if you look at the word atonement, it means what it says, at-one-ment. He went in to make atonement for his own sins, this earthly high priest did, and the sins of the people of God. And again, he was in that sacred spot once a year. He offered the sacrifice on the mercy seat, which was this the spot on the ark where the angels had their wings reached out toward each other, that place again where God was said to dwell, he would place the offering, the sacrifice on the mercy seat, and he went back out among the people to do his daily priestly duties the rest of the year. And all that was done to be sure on his part with great fear and trembling as a fallen, sinful human being who ran the risk of being struck dead in the presence of holiness should he take one wrong breath in there. 
And the author has contrasted Jesus with these earthly high priests to show Jesus' superiority to them in so many different ways. And so now, he says, the point in what we are saying in all of this is this. He's going to tell us why he's been telling us all of this. What's the big deal? It's the so what to all the high priest talk. And he could give all kinds of truth about Jesus being the high priest that God appointed for his people. But what's it matter? So Jesus is our high priest. Okay, that sounds great. But so what? That's what he's about to tell us. How should it, listen to me, affect those who are hearing or reading it? Which is a good question to ask when you're reading any scripture, by the way. So what? How, how should this affect me? And that's what our application points are going to look at. Hopefully it's what they look at every week. And we're going to see in these first two verses, and then in verse 6, what this all means for us. And let me just say it's really, really good news. Okay, The first two things that he says in this conclusion are found here in verses 1 and 2. The first thing that he says is Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that Jesus ministers in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the two main thoughts here are that Jesus is seated and that He's ministering in the holy places in heaven. He's seated and He's ministering. Let's look at seated first. S-E-A-T-E-D. Seated. Not seated. Like we've been talking about seated this morning. Jesus is said to be seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, we've seen this seated thought in Hebrews before at the very beginning of the epistle, which we referenced last week as well, but we'll see it again this week, which is uh, in Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's Hebrews 1, 3, and 4. And in that passage, we see that Jesus sat down when? After making purification for sins. The work having been completed, and like we saw last week, it was once for all. One sacrifice sufficient to take away all the sins of all of God's people forever. Once for all. No need to offer any more sacrifices for our sins. So having completed that work, Jesus sat down at the right hand, the place of honor of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus, God the Son, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the majesty in heaven. Okay? I think we've established that and we understand it, right? Right? I hope so, because we've talked about it a lot. The point is this, Jesus is seated, which means the sacrifice for our sins is accomplished. It is finished. It is done, paid in full, all sufficient merit now my own. Because He did it, it is finished. He sat down. Donald Guthrie sums this up. There's the quote I said I was going to give you. In commenting on this passage, a brief statement is given of the particular characteristics of our high priest. He is seated at the right hand on the throne of the majesty in heaven. He points out, this point has already been made in 1-3 of the Son, chapter 1 verse 3 of the Son, which I read, but is now repeated, listen, with direct application to the high priest theme. This shows, Guthrie says, how carefully the writer has worked out his thesis constantly throwing out hints which are gems in themselves but which sparkle with new meaning when seen again against a different background. Indeed, he says, this idea of the seated Christ will occur again in 10.12 and in 12.2. Again, he's repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. Guthrie goes on. It signifies a work well and truly done. And this idea is based on Psalm 100. 10 verse 1. Apart from the present statement and the parallel wording in 1 3, the only other place in the New Testament where the term majesty is used is in Jude 25, 
where it occurs as an ascription to God, but not as a title. And here we go. The fact that our high priest sits at God's right hand enhances his status compared with that of Aaron's line, the Levitical priesthood, whose priests could only stand in God's presence, their task never finally completed. End of quote. See the contrast? Jesus seated, finished his work. The Levitical priesthood could only stand, offer their offering, and get out of there. So which is better? Thank you. Now, verse 2 also says that Jesus is, secondly, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay, now, this should make you go, wait a second. You should, this should make up, why is he saying this? So we just saw that he's seated. He finished the work. It's all done, right? So then, why is he said to be a minister? That word in the Greek is liturgus, by the way, which is where we got our word liturgy. A liturgy is made to serve you. We're not made to serve the liturgy, by the way. That's a whole different subject. Amen. So liturgus is the word minister. It means a minister, a servant, or one busied with holy things, which is a priest, right? And what do priests do? They mediate between God and man. They serve God and they serve men. Okay, but didn't we say that Jesus' work was done? We said Jesus' atoning, sin-forgiving work was done. You don't have to go very far back in the memory banks, though, to remember that Jesus is presently and ever busy doing something, right? Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through them, since He always lives to... Make intercession for them. Now don't miss this. There, seated in the presence of God, Jesus is ministering. He's serving by making intercession for His people. The perfect atoning sacrifice is ever before the holy God in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Does that make you think? Does that make you search and wonder, okay, so then what's, what's that all about? Well, first of all, let's talk about this tent. This tent that was set up by man is a reference to the tabernacle, which Luke mentioned this morning, that God gave specific instructions to Moses about in Exodus 25. This is verses 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary, God said, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So God instructed Moses to have a tabernacle, which is a tent, to be made, why? So that God Himself would dwell in their midst. And we saw this morning in what Luke read in the opening reading, how that worked. That tent was set up, there was a, an inner, inner place in there where Moses would go, and when Moses would go in there, the presence, visible presence of God would settle there. And God had very specific directions as to what that tent should look like. How it was arrayed, how it was laid out, what all was in it, and in what order things were to be placed in this tent. Which, by the way, just as an aside, imagine being a nomadic tribe with a million or so people, and every time that cloud moved, you had to pack everything up, carry it, and when it settled and that cloud settled, you had to set it up exactly the same again. And that's what they did for 40 years. But this temple, this, tab this tabernacle, not temple, this tabernacle, this tent, was made exactly the way God told them to make it. Okay? So, we'll see in verse 5 that these instructions were given so that this earthly tent would be a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So more on that in a few. But here, Jesus is said to be a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Aha. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it means exactly what it says. There is a place in heaven where we know Jesus is right now in His eternal human form. He's not like floating on a throne somewhere out in space. There's a place in heaven where the earthly form of Jesus, 
now glorified in resurrected and perfect flesh where He sits and it's in the very presence of God. It's the heavenly holy of holies which God Himself created. God Himself set this up. That's where the omnipresent God reigns and rules. And there, in the presence of the Father, our perfect, eternal, high priest ministers to God and to us. The Levitical high priests entered the man-made Holy of Holies, a curtain, literally a curtain, and presented their offering on the mercy seat there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubs where God was said to dwell then. Then they built the temple in Jerusalem and they built the Holy of Holies. And the presence of God was said to dwell there. Ezekiel saw a vision though where that glory departed from that temple. Right? But guess what? The glory never departs in the presence of God in heaven. And there... In the presence of the Holy God, our great, eternal, perfect high priest ministers to God and ministers to us now and forever. So what does that mean? Listen, it means that access to the presence of God is open for God's people because their high priest ever lives, ever sits to minister to them and to their God, to give access to God, to make intercession for them, All the time. Ever. We sang this morning, Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend Thy will and wait beneath Thy feet. There in the very presence of God. Now let me ask you this. We hear this thought, we say this a lot, before the face of God. In the presence of God. And that's how we are to live. I want to ask you, How much of your life is lived in the presence of God? Consciously, purposefully, intentionally, understanding and knowing I have direct access to the God of the universe all the time, anytime, because my great high priest sits there and I want to retreat into his presence. How often do you retreat into his presence? Or is this just some weird ethereal thought? Well, okay, Jesus is there so I can come. But do you come? Do you recognize the access that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ into the very presence of God? Anytime, all the time. And how does He respond when we come? Which is an even deeper probing, deeper probing question. How do you think God responds when you come? He's probably upset with me. He's probably tired of me coming with the same old stuff. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All sufficient merit. Now mine because our great high priest sits in the presence of God, ever sits, ever lives to intercede for us. Do you know that? Jesus' perpetual presence in the presence of God guarantees our access to the Father who loved us so much that He sent His Son to die to pay the penalty for our sins, to pave the way into His presence anytime, all the time. And now, with this unfettered access, we retreat, we repose ourselves to God, not away from Him. But do we? And listen, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just asking you to really ask yourself this question. Do you realize who God is and what He's done to give you access into His presence as our high priest is seated there ministering eternally to give us access into His presence? so that we can retreat, repose ourselves to Him, not away from Him. So much here, but we've got to forge for Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So first word for, 
There's a connection here to what was just said. Jesus ministering in the presence of God, seated in His presence, is our high priest. But His work is being done in heaven in the dwelling place of God that God Himself set up. And He's ministering, He's serving for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. High priests are put in place by God. They are appointed to serve. And in order to serve, they have to have gifts and sacrifices to offer. And if you look back at the old Levitical priesthood, they would bring grain and they would bring produce and they would bring money and they would bring a lot of blood to offer and to offer gifts and sacrifices, gifts and sacrifices, serving, appointed to serve. And in order to serve, they have to have gifts and sacrifices to offer. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, our high priest, in his role as high priest, he also has to have something to offer. Well, what's he offer? Well, again, this ties in with our minister mindset. Jesus, seated in heaven, after having completed the atoning work for our sins, is the gift and the sacrifice that He is perpetually offering. Again, the perfect sacrifice is eternally seated upon the true, the heavenly mercy seat, which the earthly mercy seat was a shadow, a type of. And now, as our high priest, Jesus offers Himself And Jesus offers His own intercession as the best gift and the perfect sacrifice. So He has to have something to offer, so He says, I'll offer Myself, which is the whole reason He came to earth to die to offer Himself. But now He's still offering Himself. The atoning work for our our sins was done, and He's still offering Himself to give us access into the presence of God. And the writer has shown this time and time again that Jesus and His ministry, His sacrifice, His gift is better than that of bulls and goats, than that of earthly produce. Verse 4. Now, if He were on earth, He would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Check this out. Watch this. The writer has been making contrasts between the Levitical priesthood and the superior priesthood of Jesus. And here, the writer says that if Jesus was on the earth now, Instead of in heaven, Jesus would not be a priest at all. Why? Well, like he said before, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And the law that God gave does not make provision for priests to come from the tribe of Judah. So if Jesus, the Son of God, walked into the temple of that day and said, Hey, I want to be a priest. What would they have said to him? Show us your papers. Show us who your daddy is and who his daddy is. And if it doesn't trace back to Aaron, no. Full nepotism in the temple. To the point that Jesus, the Son of God, would not have been able to be a priest. And if he was on the earth today and seeking to be a priest, he couldn't be. Why? Because he's not Levitical. He's not from the tribe of Levi. It's the Levitical priesthood that the earthly law, the earthly ministry set up. So... If it were just up to fleshly, earthly conditions or qualifications, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, would not make the cut. He would not be a priest at all if He were on earth. It's better that I go away, He said. Since there are Levitical priests who offer gifts according to the law. So the offering Jesus made of Himself was not according to the law. Not in line with the work or sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood. And that's why he had went out of his way to make this Melchizedek connection to say, hey, there's a new priesthood by necessity. Jesus did something different, praise God. Something the Levitical priests didn't or don't or couldn't do. They offered gifts according to the law and that's not what Jesus did. They served a different purpose. Verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Okay, now remember, Jesus was said to serve in heaven, in the heavenly holy places, in the tent that God set up, not man. But these Levitical priests serve in the earthly tent, which was set up by men. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And please don't miss that. You're like, okay, I get it. 
Everything they did, everything they did on earth, they did in a literal tent. A tangible, for real, fabric tabernacle. But those quote-unquote real things were only a copy and shadow of the true things in heaven. They weren't the true things. They were real, tangible, but they weren't the true things because the true things are in heaven. The writer says that God had given Moses the instruction of, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So what God was doing, He was relaying to Moses what the heavenly dwelling place was like by telling him to make this earthly tent, these earthly things, a certain way. They were copies here on earth. They were shadows. Now what is a shadow? What's a shadow? A shadow is the form of something that you see when that thing blocks the light. Okay? So you hold a tangible thing up to the light and the light can't pass through it So the light is blocked and what you see behind it is a shadow. It has no substance, right? And so he's saying these things were copies and shadows. The result of something solid blocking light. The real things in heaven, illuminated by the glory of God, cast a shadow when that light, that glory of God is cast behind them. The earthly things are those shadows. God was showing Himself through copies and shadows of the heavenly things. Candlesticks and altars and tables and the ark and curtains and clasps and bells and pomegranates and so many minute details. If you're starting a reading plan this coming year, it won't be long before you get into that. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. And you're going, what in the world? God did these things on purpose. And they were copies, they were shadows of heavenly things. So many minute details. God, who has placed eternity in the hearts of men, was giving Moses specific instructions for the place that God was going to dwell in among His people, amongst these these tangible things. And He wanted to give them a taste, a sampling of what heaven was like through material, solid things that were copies and shadows. He wanted to show them decency and order and beauty and glory in a tent made by human hands to God's specifications. And it was awesome. But there's something better. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. This is a huge verse in this chapter. I'd said earlier that part of the purpose statement, part of the, now the point in what we are saying is this, would come in verse 6, and here we are. So verses 1 and 2 pointed out that Jesus was seated in heaven and ministers in the heavenly places set up by God, not man. Now here we see that that means much more than Jesus is in heaven and not on earth. It says that, but it means much more than that. But as it is, the author says, as it is that Jesus wouldn't even be a priest if all this was just according to earthly priestly requirements, as it is that Jesus offered up Himself for our sins and ever lives to make intercession for His people, since all that's true and it isn't just a copy or shadow, but the real things, so then, don't miss this point, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, the old ministry, the old covenant, as the covenant that He mediates is better. So His ministry is as much more excellent as the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Why is the new covenant better? Because it's enacted on better promises. Now here's the so what kind of moment for sure. No, Jesus does not qualify to minister as a priest in the earthly Levitical order, in the tabernacle or the temple. But as it is, the Christ has obtained, He has qualified for a ministry that is much more excellent. And this is really the theme of the whole book. 
His work, His service, His ministry is much more excellent. It's so much better, so much greater than that of the Levitical priest. Now remember who this author is writing to. He's writing to a bunch of Israelite Hebrew believers of Jesus who are starting to waffle and waver about is Jesus sufficient or should we go back to the law? Is God satisfied with us if we don't keep the law? Should I offer bulls and goats? Should I keep the Sabbath? Should I do all these things that the law requires so that God will be pleased with me? And listen, we ask ourselves the same question, just in different words. And what the author is trying to convey, what he's trying to stand up on the pulpit and scream at the top of his lungs is that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better. Because His ministry and this new covenant are enacted on better promises. We can't emphasize this enough. Here's the so what. His work, His service, His ministry is much more excellent. So much better. So much greater. But it's not just His ministry itself. It's the very covenant that He mediates. That new covenant is so much more excellent than the old law-based sacrificial system saturated covenant. Why? Because it's enacted on better promises. Don't miss that. We're going to see those promises in just a minute in verses 8 to 12. But here, suffice it to say that the ministry of Jesus and the new covenant that He mediates in that ministry is much more excellent than the old covenant. Because God made promises in a new covenant that are better than any conditions or promises He had in the old covenant. There had to be a new covenant. Why? Verse 7. For... If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay, so this. So it turns out that that first covenant, the old law slash sacrificial system based covenant, wasn't perfect. For, for if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now what was the fault of the first covenant. Now I hesitate to say that the covenant had a fault. It feels wrong to me that God would make a covenant that had a fault in it. Feels bad, feels wrong, like I'm blaming God. But the Bible says it, so we shouldn't hesitate to, but we do need to understand what the fault is. So what was the fault with the old covenant? Was it the law? Something that Luke read again this morning, and we don't work this out. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to say this, should I say that? He just did it. Praise God. Was the law the fault with the Old Covenant? Not really. The law did what it was sent out to do. The law was there to multiply transgressions, Paul would say. And he also says that if there, that it was there, that law was there, like Luke read this morning, to lead us to Christ, which it did. It multiplied transgressions and it led us to Christ. So that's not the fault with the Old Covenant. Was it the sacrificial system? I'd answer that with not really. Again, the sacrificial system was in place to be a type and a shadow of the work of Christ which was to come later. And it certainly did that. So what was the fault with the Old Covenant? It was us. It was the humans who were part of it. I can't remember the exact word in the all-sufficient merit song. Good deeds all now corrupted by the sinful host. Even my most righteous acts are as filthy garments. What's the defect in the old covenant? We are. The Israelites were. Human beings are the fault in the old covenant. The sinfulness of human beings. The inability of human beings are the weak link in the Old Covenant. Are the fault in the Old Covenant. Romans 8, 3-4 through 4 says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh 
could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now stop and think about that for a second. God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Since the law was weakened by my sinful flesh, God had to do something to take the place of my sinful flesh. So He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled by Jesus in us. You see that? Because that's important. God had a plan. And God placed a fail in the old plan so that He could produce a fail-safe in the new plan. The fail was us, and the fail-safe is Jesus. You get that? The law was weakened by our flesh, our fallenness. And God knew this and had made provision in eternity past to overcome our weakness by the super-sufficiency of Jesus and His work, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. The first covenant was put in place to show the necessity of and the superiority of the second, better, new covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But, praise God, there was an occasion to look for a second. We see it in verses 8 to 12. This is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, by the way. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now, just so you know, this is quoted from Jeremiah 31. Okay, So this is God speaking in the Old Covenant about the coming New Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is bringing it up in the context of the New Covenant to show how much better it is and how God had established it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, in 700-something B.C., when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. If I had hair, that would blow my hair back. As such, it's just my eyelashes that move one. Now we've looked at this passage and the one in Ezekiel that talks about a new covenant a couple weeks ago and its superiority to the old. So we won't spend a ton of time dissecting all this since we've already looked at it. But in the context of what the author of Hebrews is doing, we'll see what's going on. Note this first line back in verse 8. For he finds fault with it. No. Is the fault in the covenant? No. He finds fault with them. This just reinforces that thought that we're the problem in the Old Covenant. Right? The fault in the Old Covenant was with the people, not with the law or with the God who made that first covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. And again, then he goes through this Jeremiah 31 and 31 to 34 out of Jeremiah 31. And he goes through that and he says all that God said he would do in the new covenant. It's a new covenant, not like the old covenant made with Israel when God brought them out of Egypt. They did not continue in that covenant. And so he let them go their way. He showed no concern for them. But this new covenant will not be like the old one, he says. And look at it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? In their minds. And write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Look what God did. There's one big word, actually it's a real small word that's missing in this covenant. If. Did you see if in there anywhere? I'll do this if they. If they remain pure, if they remain sinless, I'll be good to them. If they meet my requirements by their efforts, I'll do these nice things for them. That's not the new covenant. And the old covenant was filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ifs. And there are zero ifs in the new covenant. I will. They will. I will be their God. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. He doesn't say I'll take them all away and they'll never sin again. Now one day that's coming, praise God. But I'll remember their sins no more. Not I'll forgive them if they ask. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Look what God did. He fixed the fault of the inability of His people to not sin and the fault of His people not being able to keep the law. How did He do that? By taking away their sins and by giving an internal power to keep the law, His law, which they couldn't do before. You have a sin nature that makes you desire sin and not keep my law, God says? No problem. I'll remove all those sins and then I'll write my law in your mind and on your heart and I will transform you from the inside out. And He does it for all His people, each and every one. There's no separation of priest and commoner. There's no need for a spiritual hierarchy. Everyone will be on the same level playing field. Everyone's need is the same, and the answer for that need is in the person and the work of Jesus, our great high priest. No human flesh can keep the law. So, the Spirit empowers each one to do God's will. We're all orphans, and the Father adopts each of us, each child into His family. They will all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest. For, why? For, there's a for statement. They will all know Me from the least of them to the greatest. For, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's a better covenant. Give me that. And a much more superior high priest orchestrating it all, we see in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so we do get a little bit of closure, conclusion here today in this passage. We've seen Jesus seated and ministering. We've seen Him shown to be superior again to earthly Levitical priests. We've seen the true dwelling of God in heaven as shown by the copies and shadows here on earth. And we've seen God's establishing a new covenant with His people due to their inability to keep the first one. And so, the author points clearly to the effectiveness of this new covenant to supersede and improve on the older one. He goes from the quote from Jeremiah that explains the new covenant to a conclusion about what God has said in that quote. In speaking of a new covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, He, God, makes the first covenant obsolete. That word obsolete has the literal meaning of to wax old or make old. Strong's defines it as to become old or to be worn out. Things worn out by time and use. But the best definition Strong's have is is that it is to declare a thing to be old and so about to be abrogated. And that word abrogated means to repeal or do away with. The writer of Hebrews says that first covenant is obsolete. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. 
So that those commands aren't there as a taskmaster over you anymore. Instead, I fulfill it and give you my righteousness. That opens off sleep. It's been fulfilled. It's been carried out to the letter by the perfect life of Jesus. And so that old covenant is done away with. He says, it's, it's odd wording. That first old covenant is reaching a point, the author says, of being done away with. But now remember, the writer is quoting Jeremiah about this new covenant and then commenting on what Jeremiah said. So is the writer of Hebrews saying there's coming a time in the future when this old covenant will be obsolete? No, he's saying Jeremiah is saying there's coming a time when this old covenant will be obsolete. God said in Jeremiah that He is going to make a new covenant with His people. This was God saying to and through Jeremiah that there was a need for a new covenant which would make that first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, the author of Hebrews says, is ready to vanish away. And that means just what it says. The first covenant, listen to me, at the time of the writing of Hebrews, which was somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D., was ready to vanish away. So when Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, ascended, and glorified in heaven, that old covenant was superseded. Okay? But these Jewish people are going, but the temple, but the sacrifices. Well, what happens in A.D. 70? Not one stone is left upon another of that temple. And the sacrificial system is gone. It's obsolete. It's done away with. It has vanished. Before their very eyes. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, there's coming a time, and he, I don't know if he knew, very soon when all the vestiges of this will be obsolete and taken out of the way, and this new covenant will be seen to be superior to that old covenant. The old covenant vanished away. We have Jewish friends who still want to keep the law. They think they have to. And it's already been fulfilled. There are no more sacrifices to make. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And He's ministering for us. The old covenant vanished away, but God had made provision for that by instituting the new covenant in and through the blood and the work of Jesus, which was His perfect plan all along. And He said, this is much better than that. I removed the fault. I removed your sins. And I am removing your sin." for His glory, and for our good. This new covenant is much, 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 much better. And our high priest is as better as this new covenant is to the old covenant, for His glory and for our good. So the writer of Hebrews says, period. Now, we turn our attention now to our so what? So what? I'm afraid. I'm not afraid. I know. Is very. We are very much in peril of not letting this affect us at all. And I'm not calling for a response to my message. I'm not looking to tweak your emotions, but I am so afraid of you walking out at the end of 2023 and not letting this change your life at all. Because it's supposed to change your life. So what? And that's what we ask. We're going to be looking at application through three W's. Work, wear, that's W-H-E-R-E, and worn, W-O-R-N. Work, wear, worn. So what? Let me ask you this question as we move into the so what's. How are you living? And how should this affect your living? That's what we're asking as we look at these three application points. The first one is work. Jesus has done the work of removing our sins from us. That is done. It is done. It is finished. Paid in full. All sufficient. Merit now mine. Right? That's done. Jesus is also still ministering. 
That's what he's doing. He has done the work and he is doing work. The work of Christ, the high priest, is finished and ongoing. How are you living in light of that? Are you living in light of both of those truths? Let me tell you what I mean. Jesus seated and Jesus ministering addresses what Jesus has done and what He is doing and what He will do. By what we've seen today, listen to me, and you say you say this all the time. I hope I do. I really hope I do. Jesus has taken away all of our sins. How are you living in light of that? How does it affect you? Do you get a little weepy? That's not what we're looking for. It's okay to be weepy. How are you living in light of that? Are you living as one who has been forgiven of all of their sins? Sometimes, maybe it's never crossed your mind because our sin is ever before us. But praise God, the perfect atoning sacrifice is ever before God. No stain He sees on me because I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Paul says in Ephesians 1. Do you cower into God's presence because you just sinned? You think God's surprised by that? He's not. And He's made provision for it. And He says, come, bring it to me. I've already dealt with it. It's already forgiven. And we're so numb to that truth. And you say, you say it all the time. And I'm going to say it all the time. All of your sins are forgiven. That's fantastic news. And we should live differently as a result. But not just that. Are you aware of what Jesus has done? And are you aware of what Jesus is doing? The work that He has done and the work that He continues to do, ever lives to do, and will ever live to do. It is imperative that we know that our sins are taken away. It's also imperative to know that Jesus is always interceding for me. And His ministry toward God and toward me will never end, will never stop, will never be insufficient. He foreknew me. He glorified me. That's going to happen. And that should affect the way that you live. That should affect the way that you approach God. God, I know what you have done. I know what you are doing. And I know what you are going to do because my perfect high priest embodies all of that. The work that he has done, the work that he is doing, and the work that he will do. And that should affect how you live. The finished work of Christ to remove your sins the ongoing work of Christ to remove your sinful nature, bit by bit by bit by bit by bit, to sanctify us and to conform us to His own image. His ministry in what He has accomplished is better. His ministry in what He is doing is better. His ministry that will happen in the future is better. Do you know the work that Christ has done, the work that Christ is doing, and the work that Christ will do? Because it should affect the way that you live and approach God and people. That's work. Now, where? W-H-E-R-E. Where is Jesus right now? Our high priest sits perpetually in heaven, in God's very presence. We have the ultimate man on the inside. He's not dwelling in an earthly tent because everything earthly is going to pass away. It's going to burn up. Peter said it's going to be disintegrated and then put back together in perfection. The perfection of where He is now. Due to Jesus' work on earth and His perpetual presence in heaven now, listen to me. How should I then live? Since Jesus is in heaven, seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, we have Full, open access to the Father. 
now and forever, unfettered access to the Father because of the sacrifice of the Son and because of the power of the Spirit whom He has caused to dwell in us. Because Jesus is seated there, thy mercy seat is open still. And here, let my soul retreat. I come confidently and boldly into the very presence of God. I'm not shouting my prayers from a canyon. I'm speaking them directly to the Father right now. That should change how you live. Before the face of God, in the presence of God, to the pleasure and the glory of God. The Father welcomes you because the Son did His work. And the Son did His work because the Father wanted to welcome you. And we get bored with that. We don't think about it. I'm asking you to think about it. I'm asking you to wake up. I'm asking you to think about it. I'm asking you to engage it. I'm asking you to pray about it. God, help me to know what it means to live my life in your presence. Anytime, all the time. Work, wear, and finally warn. The old covenant is worn out. It's obsolete. We're not saved by works of the law. We never were going to be saved by works of the law. We're saved by grace, through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, as told in the Word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. Now let me ask you this as we finish. Are you a new covenant believer who's living an old covenant life? Merit-based, effort-based, sacrifice-based, trying by some means, whatever means necessary, to please God with your life. Stop it. Put down your deadly doings. See the resurrected, glorified Christ seated at the right hand of the Father and praise God for the new covenant that He enacted for us. These Hebrews were in danger of trying to please God through old covenant efforts. I'll try harder to do better. I'll try harder to keep the law. I'll make resolutions this coming year to read my Bible more. Nothing wrong with that resolution, but if it's in an effort to please God or to make God happy or to like you more, it's wrong. That's old covenant thinking. That's stinking thinking. New covenant thinking says, I am accepted in the beloved and he ever lives to make intercession for me. Glory to God in the highest Amen. and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And who's he well pleased with? Those who are in his son. The new covenant is better in every way. Which covenant are you living your everyday life, your worship of God in? Remember, there's no ifs in the new covenant. God, you'll be happy if I... That's old covenant. If I do better this coming year, I'll grow. That's old covenant thinking. I will remove their sins as far as the east is from the west. I will remember their iniquities no more. I will give them mercy. I will write my law in their minds and on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's new covenant thinking. So much better. Because of the perfect work of our perfect high priest, Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your mercy seat is open still. So let our souls retreat. To know and do your will, empowered by your Spirit, and to wait beneath your feet until we see you face to face. Maybe today, maybe this year. May we live as those who expect it and anticipate it and desire it because we know that you are well pleased with us because of the perfect work of our perfect high priest. 
And may we do the works that you empower us to do to the praise of your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive the benediction? Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Try your hardest. I hope you can. No. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat pizza with us if you can.